Constellation Deep Dive into Capricornus on episode 358 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. So Shane, tell us about the talk you attended last night. Yeah, so the local club here, the Regina Center uh, for the Royal Astronomical Society, uh, had David Levy on, and uh, he joined remotely from his home in, is it Vail, I think, California, I think is where he uh, resides. Um, oh, it, I thought he was in Arizona. Or maybe it's uh, Arizona, Vail, Arizona. I, I don't know. But um, regardless, he was there. He didn't have slides. He just gave us a lecture on Carolyn uh, Shoemaker and like his relationship with Carolyn and, and uh, her husband, Gene. And it was it was just fascinating because it was a very personal talk about them observing together and discovering comets together. And uh, you could just tell there was a, a real strong friendship there. And it was uh, just a, a very enlightening uh, talk. Um, one of the cool things too is uh, David has like a lot of his, um, you know, his telescopes and, and various other things still with him. And one of the things he showed us was the original film that captured or, or led to the discovery of Shoemaker-Levy 9, uh, which mm -hmm. was the famous comet that crashed into Jupiter and left some markings behind that uh, Hubble imaged and, uh, you know, really captivated the astronomy world uh, during that event. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Neat. And then you attended, uh, I think, a talk as well on Friday night, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, but I, yeah, just to comment on on David, yeah, it's he's a fascinating uh, person. I I got to spend a whole weekend, actually like a long weekend, three days with him once, <laughs> sort of by uh, by sort of weird chance. We were uh, going to the uh, one of the early Jasper Dark Sky Festivals, and he was going to be the keynote speaker. And everybody had piled into this sort of you know it was this loud kind of rickety um van and i because i had thought once we got up to jasper that maybe i would rent a vehicle and as we were driving up in this like rickety van i was like oh this thing is just like loud and and it's going to be like this three-hour drive and i asked the guys can i rent a vehicle when i get up there he said no so i said well let me off the next stop i gotta go and i was like frantically like trying to rent a vehicle like on my phone and so i did get one and uh and i ended up driving up just by myself to uh to Jasper. But when I got up there, see, nobody had a car. Like they they had sort of a little bit of an oversight with how they were going to get the speakers around. So then suddenly I became like everybody's best friend kind of thing, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I ended up uh, driving David around because I kind of wanted to go observing and see some stuff. So he and I took our binoculars and we went like and, and drove around to like the observing sites in uh, in jasper and one day we drove up to uh, i forget the name of the glacier but there's like a famous glacier up there we drove up there one afternoon and just talked astronomy and about like some of the mutual people we knew and some of his astronomy adventures over the years so anyway i just throw, throwing that out there it was kind of a, a neat experience to kind of get his uh his sort of background and interest uh, in astronomy and and as as because of that we ended up eating breakfast and a lot of our meals and that together too so because unless you wanted to eat wherever they had sort of stuck us you know you needed a car to kind of get anywhere else so anyway it was kind of neat and get to know some of the other uh, people there as well it was pretty cool oh that's awesome 
Um, let's see. Yeah. So I went to the uh, AWRESC uh, Center uh, meeting last night virtually by Zoom because I don't know if if Regina Center is still doing this or not, but the KW Center has has decided to keep doing um, both Zoom and in-person meetings. So I think most people were attending in person, but then um, if you're if you're remote, you can choose to ju- uh, join by Zoom, which I did a few times, like during uh, the middle of the pandemic, when you know a friend or somebody was was speaking. Because I used to live in uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario, where the KW Center of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada is. Um, but, uh, I just found like so much zoom time during the pandemic. I just didn't have any more capacity for it. I, I don't know about you. I even astronomy, I was just like, oh, it, it's just too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, Re- the Regina center is still doing both. Um, you know, you can join via zoom or in person. Um, and I think that's great because with the Regina center, it's really not just Regina, it's kind of Southern Saskatchewan mm-hmm. and it gives a lot of. Uh, a lot of people an opportunity to attend that otherwise wouldn't be able to just due to the you know distance to uh, from where they are to get to Regina. Um, and I joined via Zoom uh, as well. I just uh, it's such a it's such a nice thing on a Friday night. You know, usually uh, after the work week, I'm a little exhausted, and sometimes I just don't. Sometimes the barrier to attending these meetings is just driving there, yeah, uh, because it is on the other side of the city. Um, so, you know, being able to sit on my couch and just join that way. And then, you know, the other thing I like about it is if it's going to be a a good night to observe, you know, while the talk is going on, sometimes I'm setting up my equipment as well and getting ready for, for astronomy. I didn't do that on this Friday, but, um, I do like that option of remote attendance. Yeah, that's a good point. In fact, that's, um, how I had intended to join was, was because I thought I would be out here and then. For uh, for a variety of reasons, we didn't even end up, you know, getting ourselves together to uh, to get out here on on Friday evening. So it was nice just just to be able to join and kind of even went out at one point and like ran an errand, but sort of between speakers when they did a break and that sort of stuff. So it's you know a little bit easier to fit it in. That said, though, I I do much prefer sort of the in person uh, stuff versus joining by uh, by Zoom, but. Uh, yeah, when I was back in Ontario back in the spring, it was nice to get together with those folks, and they had sort of made some jokes about me joining and being like a remote member or something like that. So I thought, oh, I'll just join because, you know, it's uh, it's nice to stay in contact with my friends back there and and see what they're up to. Uh, Peter Bacure gave a talk on uh, attending the Stellafane Star Party. And I'd seen the Stellafane Star Party article back in the August uh, Sky and Telescope and had had read that. I knew Peter was going to be going down and it was really cool to see. He and Alan Ward went down and they uh, they were coating people's mirrors. They brought like a mini uh, mirror coder and it was like this pretty high tech looking uh, gizmo. And they were they were showing how they were coating people's uh, mirrors like right in the field. Like literally they set up a, a little tent hmm. like a like a little event tent. And then we're just like coding mirrors right there on the field, like out in the open. Like it was, it was, yeah, it was really cool. Like a big bell jar, like this glass bell jar and then all the machinery inside of it. It was, it was pretty cool to see what those guys uh, were doing down there. Um, And just to hear about, 
just to hear about the Stellafane um, event. He, I think he's been down there at least a couple times before. And I think he even talked to us a little bit about that when he was on the podcast back in February. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's just kind of neat just, just to see what, uh, what these folks uh, are, are up to. And I guess the other thing is like, I'd recently been to the Saskatchewan summer star party. And so it had, you know, reconnected with some folks there and that's always fun and be like kind of caught up on sort of what's been going on around here sort of in a way. So, you know, it's kind of, uh, fun to be able to sort of pop scotch around and uh see how other people are are doing uh and the other person uh who who was uh well there was several several speakers actually um but michael wright who's a listener of ours he was doing like a messy minute he talked about i think m11 and some of uh some of the other messy objects but m11 was the one that uh really stuck out uh for me so actually ended up doing a sketch of that last night and then he sent me sort of a bit of a preview on some of the other targets that uh, he might talk about in the future. So tried to do a couple sketches of of those last night as well. So yeah, it's just kind of fun to uh, to see what Michael's up to, and he's a pretty good observer and sketcher too. So always neat. And yeah, there's a few uh, there's a few other people there. Yeah, just kind of interested to hear what they've been up to and. Yeah, and uh, do get back to Ontario from time to time. So when I do, I'll try to uh, stop in and and hang out with folks. So it's always nice to have that ongoing connection. Yeah, for sure. Okay, on to Capricornus. So uh, Capricornus is located between Sagittarius and Aquarius, and uh, first cataloged uh, by Ptolemy in his Almagest in the second century. Um, but, you know, I, I think it was sort of referenced as a variety of different star patterns and constellations by uh, many different cultures going back over the years, because while it's not that bright, it kind of does look like it kind of does look like something. I just really mm-hmm. don't know what that something is, Shane. How about you? <laughs> no, that's that's the best description I have for it, too. <laughs> it looks like something, but not sure what. I've heard it described as looking like a pair of bikini briefs to like the start a Star Trek symbol of sorts, but basically it looks like a triangle that's pointing down that somebody kind of stepped on. And none of the stars are really all that bright. In fact, from here, um, like last night, I could see the top stars, but the bottom stars were still obscured by the little bit of smoke we had left on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's not uh, as striking as some other constellations, that's for sure. But nonetheless, there's interesting things to look at. Yeah, the ecliptic bisects. So the ecliptic uh, doesn't quite cut it in two, but just about uh, kind of runs up through the northern third of it uh, and then off into, uh, excuse me, off into eastern Aquarius. But uh yeah, I mean, you know, so the planets are going to be passing. You know, that's where uh, Jupiter was in the past couple of years. And, you know, where I think uh, Saturn is, you know, just kind of uh, exiting out of. Um, so it is a spot that the planets pass through. But even if you look at the old uh, star charts, it seems like they were undecided on what they would uh, call this. They they have a sea goat there, um, which is a, a some sort of mythical uh, creature that was associated with Pan, uh, the god of the wild, and uh, with the goat Amalthea, who Zeus had fed. Um, so it's like this sort of mishmash of of a creature where you have the goat head and a couple legs, and then looks like the tail of a dragon. I guess it's supposed to be the sea goat, um, kind of where the summer 
constellations of like Sagittarius and Scorpius and uh, Aquila and Ophiuchus and kind of where they, uh, that sort of type of star pattern or, or type of mythology starts merging with the uh, water type constellations of, you know, like, uh, like Aquarius and uh, uh, Pisces Austrinus, which is a fish and Pisces proper and Cetus the whale, those kind of uh, aquatic type constellations. So maybe they were just undecided. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's um, some interesting stars there, though. There's there's a bunch of bright stars in the top right of the constellations, sort of in the northwest. And the the reason why these stars are interesting is that they were they were of great interest to Tycho Brahe when he was. Uh, doing his stellar observations and he was able to split some of these which seem like they they might be impossible and and the stars do form some interesting patterns some of them were, were labeled as uh nebulae on the first star charts and uh, simply because they have uh, tight sets of pairs or even up to say four or five stars around them and pretty amazing that uh, Tycho was was able to detect something there, but certainly, uh, you know, with with the binoculars, you can start to see that there's all kinds of pairs. Have you investigated any of those, Shane? I think you were looking at them once, if I recall. Mm, the delta, the delta pairing. Well, any of those pairings there. Uh, I'd have to check my notes. I may have looked at Omicron, uh, but that might be the only system I've looked at in in Capricorn. Yeah. So Delta is the brightest star in Capricornus, which seems strange because it's Delta, not Alpha or Beta even. Mm -hmm. um, and this has to do with the idiosyncrasies of the Bayer system. So Bayer in 1604 created something called the Uranometry, which is like really the first modern star atlas. And when he was working through that, he he would typically, though not always, label the brightest star as alpha, the second brightest star is beta, and so on and so forth. But there's all kinds of exceptions to this rule, such as, you know, in Orion and in Capricornus. And the reason for that is his rule was actually, it was that if the star um, was the first, the brightest first star, that was alpha. So sort of like the first star that's coming along through right ascension. So that's how we end up with, um, you know, uh, Delta being the uh, the brightest star there. So it, it's sort of like this weird uh, idiosyncrasies. But Delta has a magnitude of, of only 2.8. So basically like a third magnitude star. So there's probably lots of cities and places on the world where you couldn't see even any of the stars in Capricornus naked eye. No, no, it's, uh, it kind of goes back to my comment that it's just, there, there's definitely other constellations that are more stunning, you know, brighter stars, more stars, larger area of sky. I would think this one be pretty difficult to split though, because the orbits of the AA and AB stars are only like just over a day. So I'm not sure if that's even splittable in an amateur telescope. Yeah. I'm curious what the uh, separation is. I'd have to look that up. Yeah. I think it'd be pretty tight. Um, but what happens though, as they orbit one another, um, the system's visual magnitude drops by about a quarter of a magnitude. So that's how they know that they're there. Hmm, interesting. Um, the system is classified as an algal type variable. 
because of that. Moving on to Beta Capricorn, it's a multiple star system and the second brightest star uh, in Capricorn. So I guess that one kind of sort of does more follow the rules. The primary is named Dabi and is the constellation's second brightest star, has a magnitude of pretty much about just over third magnitude right on. Uh, It comes from the Arabic uh, meaning the butcher. So watch out for that star, I suppose. The B is also uh, an interesting double. It's on the uh, RASC double star program list. Um, The AB stars are quite wide um, Mm -hmm. and they're yellow and blue. And then to the west is uh, the third star of that system. And uh, it's a, it's a dark blue as well. And basically kind of forms an isosceles triangle. Yeah. There's, I see that there's five stars in total there. And in binoculars, you can even see the binary, um, the brighter component being beta one, and then you have beta two, uh, Capricorn B. And then the, the two co- components were known as Dobby major and Dobby minor. Um, and they're separated by 3.5 arc minutes. So they're a pretty good distance uh, apart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, the AB is probably binocular territory. Uh, yeah, yeah, very easily within binoculars. The bear designation for Alpha Capricorni, uh, which is sort of the star, I guess it's the star that's on the very north, um, I guess, west of, of the constellation there at the peak of the sort of strange uh, triangle. Um it's, it's comprised of two components as well, but they're not physically related and they appear um, 0.11 degrees apart. So again, uh, they're pretty far apart. These ones are really far apart. Uh, I think these are the ones that uh, the Tico had um, originally been able to subdivide so easy because they're about the same distance, I think, as Mizar and Alcor in Ursa Major, uh, mm-hmm. therefore can, can be resolved by the unaided eye um, fairly easily, I think. Yeah, Alpha 1 and Alpha 2, easy binocular double. Uh, there is a, a third member there with Alpha 1 oh. uh, that is much closer, and they're yellow-blue. And uh, again, you know, any anytime you get a star pairing like that, that has some different colors, it's worth taking a look at if you're observing in that area. Yeah, I see there's a few other stars associated with this. Uh, Alpha 2 Capricorn A is, is the brighter of the two. And mm-hmm. and the system consists of three stars shining at magnitude 3.5. And uh, Alpha 1 Capricorn A um, is about 4.3 magnitude and has three dim visual components uh, not visible in, in small telescopes. Then we get on to uh, to V, our new Capricorni, is a double star, uh, appears in the same field as Alpha Capricorni, uh, and has an apparent magnitude of about 4.75 uh, magnitudes. So it, it's sort of fascinating in a way to have all these uh, varying degrees of doubles kind mm-hmm. of packed into that same spot in the sky. Yeah, it's it's really really neat. Um, you know, for anybody that is into double stars, it's it's a it's a rich region. So I'm definitely going to spend some time there. Yeah, if people are interested in in this sort of uh, spot, I would say check out uh, Bears Urnometria 1604 Capricornus uh, star chart, and you can actually see some of these are sketched in as fuzzy stars or nebulae stars, mm-hmm. um, simply because with with Tico. I think he was noting that stars that were double uh, could be seen as a nebula for many people. 
And uh, certainly we've seen that in the early history of astronomy. And then as well with some of these other ones, certainly uh, because he was operating uh, about 30 years uh, before the telescope was pointed at the night sky, or maybe even a little bit longer, um, that uh, that certainly some of them would have appeared as uh, as fuzzy spots in the sky versus uh, doubles uh, as we know them through the telescope. Let's see, maybe we'll move on to some deep sky objects. Shane, what do you think about that? Sounds good. Messier 30. Have you have you seen Messier 30? Have you taken an observation of that before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have my Messier observing certificate. There you go. You've been certified. Mm -hmm. I did. I did all my Messier objects. I think I knew there was Messier certificates, but I did them all before I belonged to a club or anything. Oh, okay. So I never... I think I've even sketched most of them now, so I should just run through them and, and do them. I just keep coming back to my favorite ones and, and the regions, and I got to admit, some of them aren't too spectacular. Uh, Messier 30, perhaps, being uh, amongst one of them. I think Did I look at it? I think I looked at it last night, even just in the binoculars, but it just looks like a little fuzzy star in binoculars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you would you would definitely need some aperture to start to resolve that. Yeah, so Messier 30 is a globular star cluster uh, Charles Messier uh, discovered uh, as basically a circular nebula without a star. He found that back in uh, 1764. So I'm not sure if that sort of jives with uh, with your uh, observations as well, Shane. I'd have to I'd have to go back and read my notes just to see. I don't I don't believe I've looked at Messier 30 in quite some time. Yeah. Um, it's a globular star cluster. That means it's a grouping of stars that are packed together uh, through the telescope that kind of look like uh, maybe like a disco ball if it was made out of stars or mm -hmm. like a pile of sugar piled on uh, black velvet. And, uh, you know, like Messier said, it just kind of looks like this fuzzy spot. It's it's easily seen in, uh, in binoculars as long as the conditions are uh, are pretty good, but it's only about four arc minutes in diameter. So, uh, it's really not uh, not that large uh, a fuzzball. Anyway, you can easily be uh, mixed up with just a with just a fainter star in the in the general area. Mm -hmm. Let's see what's the magnitude seven point two. So yeah, definitely need uh, binoculars to see it. But through a little telescope, you you can start to see some of that extension. I think I started working on a sketch last year, but there, you know, you can see like a few of the brighter stars, sort of in the in the outer disk. Um, they may even be like foreground stars or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's it's reasonably bright in the seventh magnitude, but it, it's just a pretty standard small globular cluster, uh, very representative of the Messier globulars, if you ask me. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Palomar 12. Have you ever taken a look at these Palomar globular clusters? These ones are pretty fun. I don't think I have. Yeah, I've taken a look at uh, all the ones that you can see in the small telescopes. Uh, Palomar 12 isn't uh, isn't too bad. It's a magnitude 12. You need a decent sized telescope really to tone it down like a, like a good 12 inch is a nice size. Um, although like only magnitude 12. So it can be a little bit deceiving. Um, because it stretches across about uh, 17 um, arc minutes of sky. Like it's a, it's a pretty large uh, cluster. Uh, it's a globular cluster, but it's super loose in the nighttime sky. Hmm. So easy to maybe mistake for an open cluster. 
I think easy to not see. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, yeah, much. that's probably the best the best way to put it. Um, yeah, simply because it's uh, yeah, it's it's just going to be so spread out. So there's some brighter stars. So you might see those like in a smaller telescope, and then there's going to be like a bit of a hazy uh, background to uh, to the star. But some people have tracked down all these globulars in uh, in small telescopes. But uh, these ones, um, I think there might be a couple exceptions to the rules. These ones weren't discovered until like around the 1950s or so using the uh, polymer observatory uh, instrument there, which you may know something about, Shane, from your talk last evening. Yeah, David did talk a little bit about observing from Palomar. I can't remember... I can't remember which comets were discovered using that instrument, but that's an enormous refractor, isn't it? Like a 70 inch or something like that. It's, it's the Schmidt, uh, photographic telescope. Uh, I think it is, I think it is around 70 inch or so, but that's the one they used to discover Shoemaker Levy nine with that original film that uh, Carolyn Herschel. Yeah. So I I believe that's the same instrument they were using for the, uh, all sky, uh, survey that, that they did with the uh that they did with the palomar mm, um, okay yeah yeah so pretty good little open cluster there um kind of reminiscent in a way of some of the more challenging things like maybe like the you know that uh, ngc6 888 there the uh barnard's galaxy um it's going to have somewhat of a scene though much uh much smaller appearance there I think it might be 17 and a half um, arc seconds in size. All right, let me get back to my notes here. I do like those polymer uh, globulars. Like I said, I I haven't been able to observe them all. I forget how many there is. There's like 19 or something. I think there's one that's an error. And then there's three or four of them that are exceptionally faint. But I have been able to track down um, most of the ones that you can see in small uh, instruments. Those are kind of like the two main... Uh, targets there. But when we think of Capricornus, you know, I think of some of the sort of uh, nearby associated deep sky objects, Shane. I'm not sure about you, but when I'm going to hunt something like uh, M75 or M72 and M73 or the um, Saturn Nebula, the planetary nebula there, you know, I'm starting in Capricornus. I'm not starting in those uh, host constellations for those targets, but I don't know about you. Maybe I'm just a one-off like that. <laughs> no, no, I'm definitely the same. You know, sometimes these constellation borders um, don't make sense for finding the deep sky objects within the constellations. You know, sometimes it is easier to start in in a constellation using the stars that are you know closer to the object, even though the object might be technically classified for you know, a different constellation. Yeah. So for for me anyway, if I'm going to be observing in this uh, area of sky and I want to observe uh, more deep sky objects, uh, Messier 75 located on the Sagittarius Capricorni border. um, Well, I'm going to start up by Alpha, Beta, Delta, and then just sweep southwest from there to land on M75. And and M75 is a pretty faint, uh, well, it's not faint. It's uh, it's a reasonably bright globular, but uh, it's just over there. Sort of, I always think of that as being on the side of Capricornus versus even being inside of uh, Sagittarius. I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. 
Magnitude 8.5 uh, was discovered by Pierre Machin in 1780 and then associated with the Messier catalog uh, later on. Uh, again, it just appears like a fuzzy star, but it's hypothesized that M75 is the last remnants of a dwarf galaxy that merged with the Milky Way some uh, thousands of years ago. Hmm. Uh, history like that is always interesting, I think. Yeah. Two of the other objects there are, uh, and, and so that's just sort of southwest. If you think about the very extreme edge of Sagittarius, and then if you look towards Capricorn as well, it's it's right below those alpha and beta stars and just sort of to the southwest there. So very, very much uh, in the Capricornus region versus over by the teapot of Sagittarius. On the north side of Capricornus, is the set of M72 and M73. Have you have you had many observations of this this pair of Messiers? No, you know when I did um when I did my Messier certificate uh, certif I can't talk this morning. Certificate. We'll help you out there. Uh, yeah, I was I was going between certificate and certification in my mind and couldn't decide, but That's okay. Um I, I only really observed this Capricornus stuff once or twice. I think I really haven't returned. And as we're going through this episode, I'm, I'm really starting to realize I, I do need to return. <laughs> so M72 is just a globular discover, uh, discovered uh, by Michin again back in 1780. And Messier looked at it about a month later, then included it in his catalog um, with a larger instrument, John Herschel, who was observing from the uh, Cape of Good Hope. Uh, he described it as a cluster of stars of a round figure, um, visible as a faint nebula in a telescope of 60 millimeters or more. Uh, once you get up like into like that good five inch kind of refractor area, then you can start pulling out those individual uh, stars there in M72. M73 is right next door. It's just a handful of arc minutes away from M72. Uh, M73 was discovered by Messi in 1780, and he originally described it as a cluster of four stars with some nebulosity which is kind of how it looked like last night to me, just simply because of the smoke. Uh, but later observations, again, by John Herschel down in uh, the Cape of Good Hope, he couldn't find any of that nebulosity using that 18-inch telescope. So uh, the designation of M73 uh, as a cluster uh, was also questioned at the time, and I think it just ends up being just an association, uh, basically an asterism. I, I always have trouble even seeing M73 in a way. Like I really have to use a chart to hunt it down. It's really uh, not much to look at, unfortunately. No. And if I remember correctly, when I was going through all of my Messiers, that was one of the more challenging ones to find just because it doesn't really jump out. Yeah. One that can jump out is NGC 7009 or the Saturn Nebula. So this is a planetary nebula up in the constellation of, of Aquarius, just like M72 and M73. Um, the set of three targets are on the northern Capricornus Aquarius border. I mean, they are just barely over the border into Aquarius. And so uh, because of that, typically you're you're observing in Capricornus the night when, when you're going to observe these. Um, and there's other targets to look at in Aquarius. Maybe we'll get to those in a future episode. Uh, but 7009 is just a few degrees northeast of M73. And this planetary nebula appears greenish-yellow in uh, even small telescopes, discovered by William Herschel in 1782. So he was observing around the same time as Messier, just after. And it's one of his earliest discoveries. 
Basically, the nebula is a low-mass star that ejected its layers into space, forming the nebula. Central star is now a white dwarf with an apparent magnitude of 11.5, so that's visible in small instruments. And the nebula was named the Saturn Nebula due to its resemblance to the planet Saturn. Uh, and that was by Lord Ross using that giant telescope there in uh, Parsonsville, I think, or wherever it was. Hmm. Have you Up ever seen North. the central star? Um, I have. So this telescope that I was using is the largest telescope I've ever had the pleasure of, of spending a lot of time with, which uh, was my buddy Peter's, who, who I've referenced before. Um, but Peter built a, a 25-inch, um, I call it like a low rider reflector, where um, the light would come in like a traditional Newtonian in many ways that still is a traditional Newtonian it just instead of being bent at 90 degrees and coming out the side it was bent at like 70 degrees or 60 degrees or I guess 60 degrees or something or 30 degrees anyway it comes out much further down the tube and then he sort of had finangled the eyepiece uh in there and um they pointed it at uh NGC 7009 or the Saturn Nebula one night and then they all went off for I don't know if they went off for a beer or something, but then I just sort of sat there because you could sit. And because of the the light cone coming out at this angle, um, it was at a beautiful height just to sit, barely even looking up as you would just casually glance at the sky anyway. Just a really nice, comfortable angle. And I was just able to sit and uh, and look at that for a long, long period of time and just really take in the uh, ANSI. And in that telescope, I mean, it looked like a robin's egg blue, looked more <laughs> like what you see in the uh, astrophotos. And you, you could see like differences in the uh, those, uh, what appear to be like sort of the Saturn rings, they call those the ANSI. And you could see like differences in the length of them and in the shape of them and stuff like that, just an incredible amount of detail in a 25 inch telescope. Wow, that's incredible. That's a, a probably an observation that will be with your memory and for the rest of your days, I would imagine. Yeah, well, I'm trying to get Peter to drag that scope out here so that we can all share this type of type of observations. So he just, I'm hoping he listens to this. He just needs to retire first or something. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of those targets that really works uh, quite well uh, with with a significant aperture. But those guys back there, man, they're building five 20 inch telescopes right now, and then they're moving on to build like. 10 16 inch f3 telescopes or something just those guys are just building a, a crazy number of instruments it's just wild yeah yeah it's awesome it's inspiring and you know i would love to look through that 25 inch but i i know what would happen and that's i would i would instantly want one and and then start thinking about how i can acquire one. <laughs> yeah yeah perhaps perhaps so so that's our our little bit for capricornus um i had hoped it would have been clearer in that area of the sky that was the least clear area of the sky last night i could only see down to um theta well i could see delta alpha beta and, and a handful of other stars but uh basically um really seeing much in the way of like m30 or m75 or any of those targets m73 was the only thing i really had any kind of real look at last night um and, you know, just still too much uh, smoke in our atmosphere, unfortunately. I mean, it has cleared off significantly, but, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully the rest of it kind of moves out in coming weeks. Yeah, agreed. Anything else to uh, add to this uh, deep dive into Capricornus, Shane? No, that's everything, Chris. 
All right. Well, dear listeners, please subscribe and do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know. You can always send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>